Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Piotr Kosicki. I'm a history professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. My guest today is Professor Anna Müller, who is the Frank and Mary Pajeski Endowed Professor in Polish, Polish-American, and Eastern European Studies at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. She is the author of If the Walls Could Speak, Inside a Women's Prison in Communist Poland, and is a former curator at the Museum of the Second World War in Gdańsk, Poland. And she's also going to talk uh, with us today, or she's mostly going to talk with us today, about her brand new book out in 2023 with Ohio University Press, entitled An Ordinary Life, The Journeys of Tonya Lechtman, 1918 to 1996. Uh, Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here with you, Piotr. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I'm going to jump right into it, uh, if it's all right with you. I was very struck by so many things in this book. And I should say, first off, that uh, this is a very unusual history book for me to read. And I want to say an underline for everyone who is listening to us that that is probably one of the greatest compliments I can offer, uh, because I really spent most of the book feeling like I was reading a novel. And then I realized when I got to uh, maybe about midway through the book, you have this wonderful quotation from the protagonist's mother writing to the protagonist's father saying in 1946, quote, the story of Tonya since leaving Palestine would be a suitable topic for a very interesting novel, end quote. And I thought to myself, yep, that sounds about right. So, for the benefit of not just our wider audience, but even our specialized audience, if you could say a few words, who was Tonya Lechtman? Only a few words. And why did you choose to write about her? Okay, just a few words. Who um, Tonya Lechtman was. Tonya Lechtman um, was um, a Polish Jewish communist um, or somebody who spent her entire life um, trying to imagine um, the wor- world run by ideas of um, justice and equality. Um, she lived um, in Poland, she moved to Palestine, to France, then um, to Switzerland and back to Poland and from Poland moved finally to Israel. And um, her life story is um, very complicated, um, but also ordinary in many respects because it encapsulates, I think, um, the dramatic 20th century, um, the most pivotal moments of the 20th century history. Um, she, she somehow got entangled into that very complicated 20th century. A few words. That, that was very concise. I appreciate it. But you can say more if you want. Um, I think I will, I will pause here for now, because I, I'm, I may just... Um, just, I'll tell you why I got into the story, and that will help me maybe to say a little bit more about her. Um, my first book was about women prisoners. And at some point, uh, interviewing uh, women prisoners of Stalin's time period, meaning the immediate post-war time period in Poland, I realized that, you know, somewhere um, sort of on the fringes of memory, 
um, there was there were some recollections of women who were actually supporters of the communist state. And at that point, when I started research, researching the topic, that seemed weird because I imagine that most of these women were actually, you know, anti-communists and not supporters, not women that participated in building, supporting um, the communist, the socialist uh, regime that uh, was established in Poland after the Second World War. Um, and I started asking questions like, what do you mean communist? Who were they? And their memories seemed to be completely erased. Like nobody could actually recollect any names. Um, they sort of ex existed as this, you know, anonymous category of pro-communist uh, women. And um, at some point I ran into, at some social event, into um, a very famous and beloved Polish journalist, Teresa Torańska, and I asked her this question. And she immediately, I, I literally had 30 seconds with her. And she just said, contact Vera Lechtman. Her mother um, was imprisoned. Just talk to Vera Lechtman. So I emailed Vera Lechtman the same night, received um, response the same day. Vera Lechtman um, lives in um, Tel Aviv. Uh, and Vera said, yes, my mother... Um, was communist her entire life. The portrait of Rosa Luxemburg still hangs in our apartment that I shared with her in Israel. Uh, you should come and visit. We should talk. I'll tell you everything. She was very eager to share that story. Um, but there is, you know, there are some documents that I can send uh, mail to you so you will get a, a sense of what the story is about. And she sent me this over almost 100 pages long interview that Tonya gave uh, to Dorota Dovgiawo, uh, a journalist who at that time lived in Israel. And this was sort of a shorter, shorter version of her life. And I read it and I felt this is a novel, right? Exactly. This is like an incredible story with attention to details. It was just beautifully told. I didn't know what to do about this. I was just fascinated. I flew to Israel within maybe two years, um, I, not two weeks, but like within a couple of years. Um, I spent many, many days with Vera. I was writing, at that point, I was already writing a book about the female prisoners, really wanted to include Tonya's story in this book. Uh, Vera told me that it's possible that Tonya Lechman was actually protagonist, a, a sort of a model for um uh, Tanya in Interrogation, a very famous movie, Przesłuchanie, um, um, which I still haven't really fully confirmed, but it's actually possible that there is some kind of connection be between the two. Um, and at some point during this visit, Vera opened, you know, big closet and told me, oh, this is Tonya's archive, right? Where she showed me, she didn't, she never let me touch it, but she said, this closet, literally, actually, she used the word pavlach in Polish, which is not a, it's like closet, right? But it's, I think it's very hard to translate what pavlach means, but it's sort of out of sight, hidden away. Um, you have this um, big archive, letters and whatever. I, I wasn't sure what else is there, but she said, my brother doesn't want anybody to touch it, so I'm not letting you see it. And that was it. And I was okay with that. I felt like I got what I wanted. I wanted to learn more about her as a prisoner. Vera gave me a very detailed interview. I found some fascinating documents in the IPN, the Institute of National Remembrance Archives, and I was satisfied. Um, 
And then um, I started emailing uh, Marcel Wojinski, who I know... Okay, that's also interesting. I don't know how much time we have for this, but Marcel Wojinski, who's a Polish movie director, again, um, very accomplished, making wonderful movies, was Marcel Lechtman, the son of Tonia Lechtman, was his closest friend. So Marcel Wojinski was actually visiting the apartment where Tonia and her children lived in the 1970s and 80s, and actually... Um, he was also a student at the film school in Łódź and he was ma- he wanted to make a movie. Tonia was being visited by her prison friends and they would sit around the table and tell each other stories from the imprisonment. And the stories were terrifying for her children, but I guess they were very curious and fascinating for somebody like Martin Lwozinski with, you know, um, sensitivity for a good story. He started recording those stories. The school didn't let him finish the movie. Right. So he destroyed these materials. But I knew from Vera that perhaps fragments are somewhere out there. So I kept emailing Marcel Wojinski saying, is there a chance I can see it? Is there a chance I can see it? And I keep keep saying, no, I, I know audio is in France. Video is somewhere else. I don't have time to look. It's not going to happen. And then one year, Tonya and her children was um, created, which is a beautiful movie that tells the story of her children actually learning a little bit about mother's story. And within a couple of months, Marcel emailed me and said, I give you permission to start reading my mom's letters and documents. So I went again to Israel, met with um, Marcel and Vera. (laughs) And the rest is history. The rest is in the book. Um, But but there was sort of partially, you know, the fascination with, uh, Tonya, who Tonya was, but also the fact that her entire life she actually maintained this very intense correspondence with her family. She moved to Palestine, then to France, and she kept writing letters to her family. She continued doing this until 1970s. And in addition to that, I already knew that Polish archives have very intense documentation about Tonya, because, and that's sort of another element of Tonya's life, she was imprisoned by five different regimes. So her life is really um, dominated by this intense search for safety, for home, for equality, for sense of justice, and then interrupted by um, repeated, frequent imprisonments. Um, Yeah. Thank you. We have a lot of potential avenues to pursue. Here's one. Uh, the question about uh, family. This is, for me, a book, I mean, it, it is many things, and, and it is truly a wonderful book for that. But among other things, it is a book of conversations. It's a you in conversation with Tonya, Tonya in conversation with Tonya, Tonya in conversation with her family and her family in conversation with itself. And then another set of conversations between the state institutions, and you underline this frequently and I think really drive the point home very, very thoroughly, that state institutions were a source of coldness and that she preserved her own kind of personal voice. It's interesting to me in some sense, having read the book And I think this might be a a nice sort of fodder to draw in the listeners who who may themselves and should 
themselves read the book to think about how families develop and preserve voices from the past. Uh, a lot of what you said a minute ago, uh, Anya, was really based from your experience interacting with and also over time seeing the changing interactions between the kids of Tonya and also their own wider circles. So if I could just ask you to reflect a little bit, uh, to what extent was, is there one sort of stable family entity that frames this book? Do you feel like there's a Lechtman family that is the subject of this book, or at least is lurking behind uh, the protagonist as you trace her story? Or is there, I mean, I, I hesitate to geek out and say discursive field, but it kind of feels that way to me. There's a, there, on the one hand, we've got biology here. It should be pretty cut and dry. On the other, there are so many slippages and it's so hard sometimes to tell uh, if, as you, as you point out, right? I mean, my, the son's life is defined so many times by non-memory and by the emotions that triggers. The daughter's life is defined by memory, even if it's f- incorrect, even if it's revised and the emotions that are suppressed or not as a result. Do you, do you feel like you know Tonya and her family, or do you feel like you know less than you did at the beginning? That's, that's an excellent question. So initially, when I realized how differently Marcel and Vera approached the topic, which was, you know, very obvious from, uh, it's if you watch the movie, the Tonya and her children, it's very obvious there, right? But I was in very close interactions with them over the years, and I sort of seen how different they are and how they are both changing in reaction to the movie, but also in reaction to the documents that, that I was bringing to them and the way I was reading these letters because they were reading them differently, right? So um, do I know? Yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> so I will start answering by saying that at the very end of this long um, journey, a very close friend of mine who sort of, heard a lot about Tonya and eventually went with me to France and Switzerland to sort of follow into her steps, something that I wanted to do while I was writing, but this was impossible due to COVID and something I did afterwards when I finished. And he asked me, okay, so so was Tonya drinking, what, what, what was Tonya's preferred drink, coffee and tea? And I actually realized that I know so little about her. I didn't know what she was drinking. I didn't know what kind of food she liked. And I started thinking like, what does it mean to actually know someone, right? I was interacting with the document and I think I was trying to be... So once I realized that I don't really want to write a story of the how the family remembers, I wanted to actually write the story where I interact with different documents and show a little bit... And that's, I think, was my dialogue with the documents, how we react differently to different doc- documents and how different documents actually show a different story, a different portrayal of who Tonya Lechtman was, right? So there are letters. When she's writing letters to her family, she never really reveals much because she has this image of herself that she's trying to present and she's trying to um, provide her family with to calm them down, right? Because she is, you know, first she's in France before the Second World War. She is uh, unemployed. She doesn't know French. 
she's initially with her husband and then she's alone. The war, Second World War starts. She's communicating with her family. They are probably terrified, worrying about her, especially that they want her to come back. She doesn't want to come back. She, at, at many, many points, they're asking her, her to return and she could have done it to return for first her own safety, then the safety of her children. She refuses. And yet, you know, it's it's really hard to imagine the level of fear, um, stress um, that she must have experienced. All I'm getting are her letters where she's saying everything will be fine. I'm doing okay. So she's calming herself down, but also responding to the worries of her family. So again, I don't really know who she is. I only know how she's interacting with her family how differently her children saw her because her children see her, saw her as very, very differently. And, you know, the age difference is only two years. So it's hard to um, explain the differences only by age differences. Then she is a very different figure in the memories of her, some of her friends. I didn't manage to find many of her friends. And yet a very different image of her and how she actually behaved during the war, the war is provided by the documents, for example, for example interrogation protocols from Poland. Um, so do I know Tonia? Probably not. Um, I guess I can also sort of engage with this question on a more philosophical level. Do we ever know who the other person is? Um, I guess we only get, you know, one dimension. And here... Um, I think that, that this is what was so fascinating for me as a historian, that the richness of the documents and actually the possibility of seeing her from different angles and being able to show at least some of the dimensions of who she was and how she managed to survive. There are moments when uh, she's describing years after some of the most dramatic moments uh, of her escape from, you know, um, friends from uh, Vichy friends where she's really fearing for her life and at that moment there are some moments when I refrain from uh, commenting trying to just let the word speak because it's just so hard to actually uh, comment on her words or even reimagine of what she m must be going through and there is another danger because as a historian uh, we are not supposed to get too close to the people we're writing about. And clearly, I am traveling this road almost with her. I am a little maybe too close, right? So aware of that, very often I just try not to comment, just let her speak. And then- I was struck in your, how you point out early on in the book that you were called Tonya multiple times by your research assistants during the research process. Well, because if, you know, if, if I, if I, I had a research assistant, uh, first of all, you know, um, it's not that easy for me to go to France or to Poland anywhere during the academic year. So I, I knew the letters, I knew the material, I knew the story. And then when I, I, I my plan was to start actually intensive research in 2020, right? So I planned my trip to Switzerland and my trip was supposed to happen three days after the official lockdown was imposed in Poland. I was already in Poland on Fulbright. I was supposed to fly to Switzerland. But prior, like in November 2019, uh, I found a French assistant, a uh, research assistant, um, and she started doing research for me. And this was wonderful. And then she continued throughout 
COVID and it was, you know, like the documents were so intensely personal. And we were able to, for example, find out her, her first child was born in Paris in 1937. And we were able to access the documentation of that moment, the labor, the birth, right? The documents were so intense that I think almost everyone that sort of helped me in this process was getting involved with her story uh, because it was um, intense, but also because of the nature of the documents very uh, very intimate. So one of the, I think, something that I said early on as a compliment, I want to explain a little bit more what I meant, saying that it's a very unusual book. You provide so much evidence and you reflect on the evidence as a historian, but also philosophically and emotionally, I would say. You have sort of a holistic picture here. And what I found very striking is that the abundance of evidence often suggests a kind of positivism. And there's no positivism at all in your approach. I mean, forgive me for, for saying that. Maybe you disagree. What I see rather is you know thick description. So you're talking about politics, you're talking about migration, you're talking about a range of sort of core topics of the European 20th century, like you said at the beginning, in some sense, quote unquote, ordinary topics. And yet you talk about them in such depth from standpoints, I remember when I was doing my PhD research, occasionally I would be advised, well, sure, of course you should write about that guy, but leave out the fact that he was an alcoholic or leave out the fact that he had a lot of extramarital affairs, or etc. Et, et and your approach is quite the opposite. Uh, not in the sense of piercing taboo, but letting the life speak for itself. I'm curious if that ever posed any dilemmas for you? Uh, ethical might not be the right word, but I'll say it. Methodological is an easier word because it covers all kinds of stuff. But um, how, do, how do you feel about the kinds of choices you made with what evidence you did or didn't use and how you checked the various versions of Tonya, Tonya against Tonya uh, uh, in your book? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, that's a very good question. Yes, there were a couple of moments and I'm trying to think whether um, there was a moment when I decided not to share a detail. Uh, to give one example. Um, the Swiss archives, she, she spent a few years in Switzerland and the Swiss archives turned out to, to my big surprise, to turn, uh, turn out to be an enormous source of information. The way that Swiss, Switzerland works as a state, it's amazing, right? Like almost every of her step is being recorded. There's always somebody who is making sure the the documentation is, is really tremendous. And the way we actually got the documents, the COVID happened, it was one email to the Swiss National Archives. It's to all the people that are working on Polish history and it's so hard sometimes to get the documentation. I got digital versions of all the documentation, over 100 documents within five days. It was in my mailbox. And at some point, she is she goes through a number of um, refugee camps 
until uh, at some point she actually receives a permission from the state to relocate to a house um, run by Margaret Loher, a woman she she met previously who is Swiss uh, citizen and, and she's trying to establish a safe house for uh, Jewish women and their children. And she invites Tonya to help her run this house. It's near Zurich. And Tonya and her two children. This is also a moment that where she can um, reunite with her children because, you know, at some point in Switzerland, they were separated. And um, Tonya, there is there is a police hour. She cannot be outside of the, the house after 10. Uh, but she meets, she goes to Zurich to a dentist and she meets a man she met in a different um, camp, in a different refugee camp. And they um, go to a movie theater, right, to watch a movie. That's the documents, the state documents. That's the story that the documents report. And um, after the movie, they go to a hotel, right? Uh, they go to a hotel because it's too late. That's what's in an official document. They She reported that it was too late for her to catch a train back to where she was staying. And she was afraid of being on the streets after 10 p.m. So they both went. And, you know, the same police hour was curfew was mandatory for him. So they both went to a hotel. And in the morning, she went back. He went back. But soon after, I think he went. Before she left, police showed up in this hotel and they found her. She was not supposed to be there. Um, he was. He received a financial fine, and she was moved to another refugee camp um, as a punishment. Where she was, she spent I think a couple of months, and she was knitting socks. Uh, this was a form of punishment. She was separated from her children again. My first thought was. It's an interesting but sort of obvious <laughs> social fact, right? Um, a moment, a sort of a situation happens that can be, um, you know, from a gender point of view, from a history of women, a woman's history point of view, it sort of man is receives a financial fine that is not very big. Women actually uh, get seriously fined for put out because, of course, the accusation is that they maintain extramarital relationship. Well, she's officially married. He's married. We don't know that, right? But that's what the, the, the state representatives assume. So my first thought was the children know nothing about it. Uh, it is possible that there was an affair. Um, so the first thing I did was con- I contacted Marcel and I had a conversation with him. And we talked about this and I didn't want to share it openly with him because I did, wasn't sure how he was going to react since he had such an idealized image of his mother. Um, but we eventually talked about this and we both agreed um, that this is actually something that should be shared because we don't really know what happened. We don't. We should not be assuming. And I think that's how I presented it. We don't know what happened. We only know what the state documents are telling us that potentially could have happened. I think what was important here is that she was punished. She was separated from her children again, which tells us again something about you know how the Swiss um, state was treating refugees of different genders. We also know that she decided not to share that fact with almost anyone. In the longer the longish interview that she gave that I already mentioned to Dorota Dovgiawo, she actually mentioned that there was a moment when she was bored and she was just knitting socks. So, you know, she probably sort of um, conveyed elements of that memory without 
you know, providing context um, that then the documents provided. Um, so this was sort of one of those elements. So usually for me was more um, because I was, I had a, I still have a very good relationship with her children and writing this, I knew that they will be reading it, right? So this book was in a sense also, and that's not very ethical for from any point of view, because historians should not feel this kind of attachment, but it's a personal story. And I'm writing it in conversation with her children and her children are very much present there. So I wanted to make sure that that's okay. Um, and that there was a story that we could have, uh, inc- that I could have, that I could include that would have some kind of larger uh, message. That's just one example. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I, I want to come back to Switzerland, but first, if I can editorialize for just a second, I mean, I, one of the things that struck me about your book and something that I want to communicate to our listeners is that it's really a genre-bending book and a genre-crossing book. And again, I mean that in the best possible way. I mean, for me, it is as much ethnography and I mean, you, you don't make it theoretical, but you could have uh, if you wanted to, in the sense that I could tell that the way that the voices were mapping and the way you were interrogating and connecting the different characters to each other, whether in the family or across space or whatever, I think it's important for our listeners not to have the sense, I mean, as you were explaining before, this is a different kind of history. It isn't intimate history. You made that choice. Uh, I think oftentimes historians don't leave that out either A, because their own interests are elsewhere, or B, they don't want to get sued, (laughs) to be perfectly blunt, right? Uh, But that doesn't mean it's not fair game for a variety of reasons and on a variety of levels. Uh, Anyway, I, I, I... I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot about this more unless you have something uh, you wanted to add, but I found it refreshing, partly because you were so comprehensive about it. It wasn't just uh, a set of anecdotes brought in here and there about the family. The book ends with the family, but also almost every chapter starts with the family. And the reader will find that the process of connecting these different voices and checking the sources against each other is impossible without this kind of ethnograph. I mean, Ruth Behar, whom you quote in the epigraph at the start of the book, one of my favorite ethnographers, uh, right? And I mean, it's it's not classic, quote unquote, I mean, certainly not positivist history, even with all the thick evidentiary description incorporated. So I guess that's a long way of saying that don't 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 diminish your own work. <laughs> I appreciate this because you know I, I I absolutely agree with you that this is that that was my choice to write a slightly different book, uh, but I was also thinking you know this book will probably not get ever an attention of a serious history book because it's a slightly different book. It's more personal. It's it's uh, it's ethnography. It's oral history. It's family. It's there's a lot of sort of um, references to the present moment. Um, and there's not much theory, even though I agree with you that um, there's a lot that can be done. Uh, I mean, the easiest answer would be I was not that interested, although right now I am at the moment when I'm sort of thinking about maybe writing, you know, an article that would help me to connect to connect these dots. But at the same time, I'm getting into the next topic. I'm not sure I want to go back and 
that was a choice. And that was partially a choice because as a historian, I felt so pulled into the story and I didn't want to resist. I mean, at first I wanted to resist and then there were so many elements of the story, the documents, the physical touch of some documents, the conversations, the fact that I felt like I was pulled into this family that I thought, okay, I, I'll i try not to resist. I'll try to be as transparent as possible the process, but that's it. There is the story to be told. So if you, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Just yeah. one last sentence, because part of me was thinking this is an ordinary story because there's so many women and men that had similar experiences. There's nothing extraordinary about the story except that 20th century is an extraordinary century, or maybe not because 21st century also seems to be very extraordinary, right? What is extraordinary about this story is the fact that there is this incredible richness of sources that we don't usually have when we, you know, in most cases, right? We always say sources are fragmentary. Here they are fragmentary, but they are immense. Um, So that also felt like as a historian, I have to tell that story because that story tells the story of many people who are not intellectuals, who are no, um, you know, um, don't, don't write about their lives, right? Uh, the title is Ordinary Life with a Question Mark, something that actually Natalia Alexion suggested after reading uh, Draft because she was saying, well, it's not a very extraordinary story. Well, it's not because the 20th century is such a crazy century, right? Um, and I felt I was pulled into her story, but it also felt like an obligation to tell that story. And by that story, maybe tell stories of many people. The The... Follow-up I was going to ask you is just if you decide to write that article, here's a question. I mean, go ahead and answer it now, and then uh, I would love to see an article-length answer, but you know, we'll see what, the, what our listeners want. Uh, how do you teach what you were just describing? I'm, I was thinking about this throughout the book. It's read so well, I want students to read it but which students and in what context. And in that sense, I want to take you back to the point you were just making about ordinary versus extraordinary. Is ordinary a selling point or is it, does it make it harder to teach the book? I'm just curious how you feel. Um, that's a, that the question of whether it's a selling point, I think it's not a selling point. I actually think that that it's not a great title for for that reason. Um, I don't mean marketing. Sorry, I I meant in terms of the pedagogical advantage, right, of thinking through that category. Okay, that thank you for clarifying that. Um, The first meeting I had about this book was with uh, a class, a college class in Florida. my he, Ukraine historian, my friend Michael Flower, uh, Fowler, uh, invited me to speak about this book with her students who read the entire book. And uh, I think that the fact that it was an ordinary person was actually appealing to them. That there was somebody um, who was just ordinary, somebody like them or their parents, um, who had a very basic education. Um, again, all she had, she had this drive 
for a better world. And she, and you know, sometimes I always, sometimes I wonder whether it was a drive for a better, to create a better world, or was it just a drive for a safe home for her and her children? Um, but either way, I think uh, there was something that was appealing to these young people. So how would I read uh, teach this book? It's a beautiful question. I, I didn't think about this. I was really surprised by the warm welcome and amount of questions that, you know, were very basic, but at the same time helped to provide some kind of historical context and help the students to sort of um, understand the, the, their relationship between, you know, historical details, context, and personal life, the choices that people make and how the choices are limited or how historical context actually circum circumscribes um, the, the choices. Um, writing an article about how to teach this book, that's interesting. Do people do that? Can I write an article about how to teach my own book? <laughs> Why not? I, I think, I, I mean, uh, this is maybe a longer conversation, but I think that the case you just described of the students at Stetson, uh, that in and of itself is quite telling, right? So it's not so much just reflecting on, I mean, you, although you could, I mean, I, anyway, you'll see what makes the most sense to you. But for me, every, every book I read for the purposes of having a podcast conversation, I also think which students are going to want to talk about it, what's the way to do this, because a lot of our listeners are potential teachers of this book, or at least will want to share this book and, or parts of it with a variety of uh, mentees, students, colleagues, advisees, etc. And you know, I could see teaching this class in a, a kind of a general graduate seminar in history. Uh, why not? The, 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 I, it, not it, 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 not every book has to be Foucault to be relevant across the discipline in the sense of being ultra conceptualized. I like the richness of the detail and the frankness because the frankness is so rare in my experience, uh, especially in recent history. I think maybe folks who write about the more distant past feel a little bit. You mean the frankness of the author, the historian that is writing? Just saying, you know, sorry, I became friends with her. <laughs> what can I say? Um, but but it, it just felt like being transparent was the only way to write this book. Uh, it, it was it was just the only way I could actually defend my own interest in this story, right? Because like, what what is driving our own interest? Well, sometimes we have we need to answer larger questions that are driving us. But here, I was just attracted by the story. So if you'll permit me, I will pivot back to the story itself for a little bit, because we've talked a lot about framing and a lot about uh, the experience of producing the book and I think how, what it tells us. And it's a book that I really you know, would advise any number of audiences to pick up for that reason. But it is helpful to have a little bit more of that let's call it conventional historic conversation about historical context. I actually think that you undersell the uh, takeaways here. And my favorite, and I want to ask you more about it, because I think that this book offers a unique take on the history of communism. And 
here are three things that struck me. I'm not going to quote, but I have quotes to back them up if you're curious where I'm getting this. Communism as motherhood. Communism as marriage. Communism as domesticity. Those are three things which, I mean, in part, this is because you're very conscious of gender roles and you wanted, I think, and, and I mean, it, how could you not, when you're telling the, uh, Tonya's story, talk about what it meant for her to be a woman and how that conditioned her. But I'm curious, you know, if you felt this way, or if you feel this way, reflecting back on having, on this book that you finished, that it's not just that she was a communist mother. It's that one valence of her communism dictated her motherhood. Does that feel too strong or is that no, right? Absolutely. And I think um, that was that was one of the initial things that draw to me to her story when I was when I only knew the prison part of her story. Um, she felt very attached to this idea that communism provides space for a better world. Her husband, who was um, a Russian Jew whom she met in Palestine and who spent um, years before coming to Palestine in Austria and then uh, went to fight in the Spanish Civil War and died in Auschwitz, um, he was very much driven by communist ideology. He was the one in this union that was reading and Marx and Trotsky. And I don't know where her communist ideas are coming from, how much of this was conversation with him, her friends, sort of the sensitivity, the participation in different students' organizations when she was still a student in Poland before the war. But communism was something that was sort of delineating her horizon. And she returned to Poland partially because she believed that Poland was a personification of this dream that her fa husband died for and a place where she could raise her children in the memory of their father that they never really met, um, but also in sort of appreciation for this new historic reality that actually made motherhood um, easier. And she, it, it's, you know, she, like, if you look at her story from a, from sort of, um, um, without knowing the details, she, for example, when she's working intensely in different state organizations before she's in prison, she actually puts her children in an orphanage a couple of times. And her children cannot understand this, right? And and she has such a deep trust that the state knows what it is doing with regard to raising children that she doesn't question this decision at all. Her children questioning it, right? Asking whether she was more a mother or a communist. And for her, communism was motherhood. She could be a mother for not only her children, but for everyone who sort of was in her orbit through her being a communist. So my follow-up to that is partly dictated by her geographical mm -hmm. migrations, right? So, I mean, there's so many different migrations that compose her story. I... And I think this is something that the, the the listeners should hear so that they can reach for the book afterwards, that the book, like you said at the beginning, she was imprisoned by five different regimes, but they weren't all in the same country. 
obviously, right? So she traveled and some of her choices for where she landed and where she stayed, me as a historian, for example, of France, not very logical place for her to be. I get the communism, but I don't get the other stuff. So, you know, I was sitting there thinking, did they pick France because Leon Brum was prime minister? And they thought maybe there was a shot at getting some communist ideas translated into real life policy and governance. Uh, or maybe they that's that's higher order math when we think about their life. Is is what you just said, communism is motherhood. That's great at an abstract level. And I'm sure, I know she believed that because you've shown it. I'm just curious how she got from that to, I go here, I don't go here. I want to go to Spain to fight alongside my husband, but I can't. I will instead have a kid. I will stay in France, even though my family's begging me not to. I will hide in Switzerland. I will become a humanitarian, etc., etc. I will stay in Poland even after five years of brutal Stalinist prison. Uh, how do you how did how did those dots get connected? You mentioned in your introduction you like you wanted to connect the dots here. I find that still quite extraordinary. Yeah, and it's and it, and you know her mobility, sort of mental mobility and physical mobility, are striking, right? In that sense, maybe her life wasn't that ordinary because how do you decide to like quit everything and just go right in the nineteen nineteen thirties, for example? But she was doing it. So I think they moved from Palestine. They were expelled from Palestine as communists. They had to leave Palestine. So where do you go? Um, her family just escaped Poland. They didn't want to come back to Poland. Um, her family thinks that the plan was to fight in a Spanish civil war. And that's why they went to France, because this was the the, the quickest way to... And right now I am uh, entertaining this thought about writing, you know, about female participants in the Spanish Civil War. And I see this as a sort of uh, a model for many of, uh, of these participants, right? They would go to France and then down to Spain. So it's very possible that even though I never found an actual evidence that that's what they were thinking, they were in France and that gave them many options, there was Leon Bloom, you're absolutely right, right? There was this sort of image of France as a democratic state and that provided them with a quick jump to Spain. Um, she didn't go because she got pregnant. And it's interesting that when she got pregnant, um, she actually portrayed her pregnancy as sort of a gift she can offer to the world by raising children in you know this democratic spirit anti-fascist spirit right so men are fighting and and we know that there was a very short period of time when women were actually admitted to fight um um to be military to be part of the militaries in the spanish civil war so she definitely missed that window of opportunity so she could have gone to do uh, any kind of skilled labor but she didn't have any skills and then she got pregnant so she so she stayed in france um why did she stay in France um, throughout the war? Never left for Palestine. Love, her husband, hope because he was there. Hope that this war that this this war is not going to develop the way it developed. That she could have been close to him and children needed him. Uh, and after that, you know, when she realized that the situation is actually much more dire dire than uh, she initially thought, she was on the run, and Switzerland provided her with the space. And you know. 
the one question is, uh, I got this question um, from couple of historians basically asking about the nature of her communism because you know we usually meet communists as even through the fragmentary documents as ideologists right ideologues uh people that are driven by certain ideas she is driven by relationship with people and we know that because we have a lot of documents for her it, it, it may be common for many of the communists that they were not driven by any any kind of lofty ideas or but just connections with the people that's what exactly was driving her social activism in switzerland and then pushed her to go back to poland uh because she saw the level of misery all over the world because she saw the refugees and and she was helped by a lot of people with open hearts who again similar to her belief that you know people in need need help and our support and that was driving her, really sort of this, this international, global, transnational solidarity. Um, that is, in a sense, also motherhood, right? A different form of motherhood. It, it's so striking to me. I mean, you've, you use the word solidarity uh, on and off throughout the book. And I was reading and thinking to myself that her communism sounds like solidar- lived solidarity, uh, which, of course, I mean... So many communists would look at that and say, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, and the problem with the party line, and you, you talk about this at some length, uh, when you discuss her imprisonment and its after effects for her, is that uh, she doesn't seem to be able to make sense of party lines at all before the war. Also, when her husband told her to cut ties with a Polish communist activist because it wasn't politically okay anymore. Uh, The reason I bring this up is because your story also highlights, and this was kind of a, I mean, the, the way you came at it was a real revelation for me. I've read a lot about Noel Field before, but Noel Field for me is one of those great sort of uh, bête noire of the historiography of Stalinist Eastern Europe, where the name comes up everywhere and no one can really make sense of him. And here he's a family friend. And, a, you know, you point out that maybe they were... Uh, Maybe there were more. Dot dot dot. So the 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 question that I wanted to pose for you, if if we think of communism as a matter of personal or interpersonal relationships, rather than ideology, uh, I'm curious how she managed to stick it out for so long. Uh, at the end of your book. Hopefully, I'm not giving this too much away here. At the end of your, your book, she criticizes herself as a communist for having been wrong. And I'm just curious if you feel like that meant that she understood some of what we've been discussing. Sorry, I don't want to skip over the Noel Field thing. If you could say a few words about that point in particular, I think that would be, it's so striking, you know, basically to, to, to take someone who is a kind of a mystery figure of the 1950s and make him into a real human being the way you did. Please. Um, yeah, Noel Field is a fascinating figure in and her very close friend. And she ran into him in Switzerland, where um, she, being in, in Zurich, staying with Margaret Loher, with a person that, again, I mentioned her already created a safe house for Jewish families. She wanted to do something, right? And again, I think she had this sense of, um, 
I've been sitting too long. I need to do something. My husband may be somewhere out there. At, at the beginning, she doesn't know that he died in Auschwitz. So she wants to do something. She has this sense, this urge to uh, act, which, you know, is sort of understandable if you see how mobile she has been up to that point. And she finds um, school for social workers. And through there, she meets some Poles who actually introduce her to Noel Field, who is then trying to set up uh, humanitarian convoys essentially to different parts of France and Germany to help the Polish um, refugees um, to actually you know, move back to Poland. And she's going medical convoy as a person who is organizing these medical convoys. Convoys are organized by Paul, run by Poles. There's Polish doctors and nurses, but they are sponsored and financed and this sort of uh, institutional umbrella that's um, that's Noel, Noel Field, that's, that's done by, organized by Noel Field. Um, and then when she moves to Poland, she actually works in a hospital that Noel Field is again trying to uh, find uh, resources for. And it, again, it's not quite clear how much aware she was of the fact that Noel Field was not looked upon um, very graciously by the communist state. He was, you know, a former Soviet spy, potentially American spy. There are so many stories circulating about who Noel Field actually is, and he gets imprisoned soon after he gets imprisoned. Um, she, the, the, your question about why she kept, and that's a striking thing too, when she actually finds out, because initially she's in prison, her children are being taken to an orphanage and she doesn't know where they are. Eventually she finds out. It's also a very surprising story how she found out or her children found out where she is because nobody knows where she is. Nolifield is also in prison. All the people from the circle are in prison. Uh, all the connections are broken. Um, when she starts writing to her children, she still has this um, faith, which at that point feels cruel in the Polish state. And he, he, she keeps telling her children, I trust that the state is protecting you, right? Just be thankful to this great communist Polish state for everything that you can receive. Just be grateful and be good. And um, that's her way of being a mother from outside of prison. She... she um, so, delegated state institution and orphanage in this case to take care of her children. And then she finds her children after she's released in a horrible condition. And yet she's still a communist. Um, well, that's something to be said about, you know, I think there is a lot to be said about this, but partially um, at what point you actually give up on a dream of your life, a very sort of basic partially existential, partial philosophical question. Um, how do you continue living? If you, that seems like you reach a wall, right? You've, you, your entire life is sort of concentrating around this one idea. You made so many mistakes maybe, right? Believing and fighting for something that is just an utopian dream that actually caused so many, so much suffering. Her husband died for it. Uh, she maintains this dream partially to sort of extend the parental care for her children. Her husband sort of speaks to children through this communist dream. Um, it's 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 very cruel. It's very hard to admit that this is this is not it. And she eventually gets there, right? Uh, she eventually 
read, she looks at her life at some point, I think it was the first time when she was actually um, making movie, speaking with um, the people that were making movie about Noelfield when she admitted that she was all wrong. But then she starts talking about, you know, uh, all the bad things that are happening in Israel, right? How, she, how, how there's really no reality that guarantee guarantees some kind of justice and equality and um, humanity in material relationships. So even when she gives up on communism, she remains an idealist that's sort of very much concentrated on, you know, personal relationships. Uh, it's striking that, I mean, in some sense, the word drops away, but the values remain the same, it seems, for her. Uh, and And that actually brings me to one point we haven't discussed so much. I think it's okay. We got to leave as much as we can for the readers to enjoy in the book itself. But that's the fact that she was Jewish. And I, while you were talking a moment ago, I was thinking, could it be as simple as the fact that the anti-fascist state that she so dreamed about, even while it was torturing her in prison, targeted her ultimately as a Jew, even though she could have cared less about being Jewish for the most part, and started using fascist rhetoric. And you, you talk about that at length. I mean, there's been a lot of writing on 1968 in Poland. And I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. So Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. That's the moment when she decided to leave Poland, right? 68 was the breaking point for her. It was the breaking point. I mean, there were a couple of uh, moments when her family was saying, "You are wrong. This is not. This is not it." And yet, until and I think what matters here is the fact that it was her daughter that was directly targeted, and her daughter just couldn't take it anymore. And it was her daughter who decided to leave. Right? Her family, her children were thinking about leaving before, but they were too young. There was no way for them to leave. And at that point, the children were ready to go, and they were, "If you want to stay, stay." But this is not our place. So I think that's the moment you were talking about this connection between motherhood, relationships, and communism, right? All of this was breaking away. Like she was losing sort of stable ground in all the three, all, all those different categories. Her friends were leaving. Uh, her family, her children wanted to leave. Um, she was lonely. It was this loneliness of somebody who is fighting for something that nobody wants to believe or support this idea anymore. And she decided to leave. And she withdrew from public life completely, right? She started cooking, actually. She became a very different person. This was it, in a sense. She sort of made this sudden, because up till, up till, up till the, that moment, she, was, she managed to combine domesticity, as you mentioned, with her uh, communism. And this was it. Her move to Israel changed that. So I, I, this is a good opportunity for us to circle back to something that I wanted to 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 to, to ask directly, which is uh, obviously uh, we've we've come across this a few t- times in our conversation already. Gender is one of the crucial frames for thinking about Tonya's story. Obviously, I'm curious how now having finished the book and having spoken about it already and having reflected on the final product, what do you think that Tonya's story uh, has to offer more generally about thinking about gender in 20th century Europe? 
and I know you were you were looking in, you were looking intimate, but and I'm going to flip, I'm flipping that. But part of the reason is that I think you, there are a lot of answers in your book, and one of them is what you just said, which is the transformation of the role played by domesticity in the context of her own political trajectory. Uh, that's not something that would have happened to men or most men, at least. Uh, I'm. Could you say a few more words about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great question. So I there were moments when I was frustrated with her, right? Again, like speaking about me being a little too close, maybe to her, because there were moments when you know it felt like you are making so many dependent decisions. You are traveling on your own, and yet you come to France, and you are the only one who can get a job because you can pass for French more easily than your husband, and you can get a job because it's easier for a refugee woman to get a job. And then he goes to Spain. You follow him with one child. You meet a woman, and he tells you you cannot have this relationship, right? So there are moments when um, she is very moments when she is independent, emancipated, and yet sort of yields too easily to his decisions and the way that he perceives the world. But I think what's interesting, and I think that's what you are referring to, is the fact that she was able to use you know, her private life, different aspects of her private life to gain some kind of public visibility. And she was actually using it, um, not maybe so much in Switzerland, but the moment she moved to Poland, the way, um, you know, the way she organized the life in the hospital, the way she, who she became publicly later on when she was, um, you know, creating her kitchen as a modern kitchen, sort of uh, presenting it as, as, you know, a model sort of uh, communist um, organizational skills. Um, that, that was interesting. I'm not sure whether this is what you're referring to, but I, I, I think uh, the sort of flexibility of private life in the way it can be adapted for public display um, could be, you know, one potential answer to your question. Yeah, thank you. I, I was curious, uh, in part also, you know, you, you had highlighted this fact that domesticity was part of how she understood communism or something enriched by enriching communism. And then the communism description dropped away and she still retreated into domesticity. Yeah. Well, because I think the, 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 the link here is her role as a mother and then as a grandmother, right? So when she actually left Poland, she... I think started reflecting back on her mistakes as a mother, potentially, probably having multiple conversations with her children who are increasingly bitter about sort of sense of being abandoned, right? But no, she wasn't unique in this respect. There is a lot, there is a whole group of children that felt abandoned because it was so easy for their mothers to, you know, give them up to parents, to grandparents, to, um, and not parents, but to grandparents, to some kind of uh, children's homes, right, because they were publicly involved. Um, so I think that's also something that she started, started experiencing in the 1970s um, through the conversation with her children. So this retreat, her retreat into domesticity is actually striking. But it's also interesting that at that point she adapted French cuisine, right? So she was also, in a sense, sort of... Um, choosing what she was cooking, how she was raising her children um, in sort of the model that she picked for that. 
she was still sort of trying to form, you know, the young people that were under her under her care that the grandchildren were not overly happy with. I uh, wanted to to ask if 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 you feel like we can think of, and this this is maybe. I don't know if this necessarily follows the train of thought we were just describing, but when we think about Tonya's family, it's I, I can't escape the fact that her husband, likely, and I got to say likely because I guess we're not sure, uh, died uh, on an Auschwitz death march. So in that sense, he's a presumptive Holocaust victim. The Holocaust itself obviously is in the background in the book, but it doesn't figure prominently for Tonya, and therefore it doesn't figure in the conventional sort of historiographical sense in your book. I wanted to ask you point blank, because obviously her Jewishness does come up in 68. It came up in the 1940s and 50s as well, clearly, in Poland. And obviously it dictated her status in, in France after 1942 and in Switzerland. Is, is, do you, does the Holocaust and historiography of the Holocaust help make sense of Tonya's life yeah. or vice versa? What do you think? Well, yes, absolutely. Because um, so interesting, interesting fact, uh, interesting potential fact i'm not sure how um how sure i am of this but we before before this conversation we talked about dora lorska who was a, a doctor prisoner in auschwitz so i am almost convinced tonya learned about her husband's death in in paris from one of the prisoners doctors that were in Auschwitz and were in close contact with her husband. I'm pretty sure that was Dora, Dora Lorska, right? So she was in conversations with a number of, um, um, you know, prisoners of Auschwitz. So very early on, she was aware of what the Holocaust was, even without naming it. And her family was aware because most of um, their uh, family members who stayed in which perished in Treblinka. Uh, the first letters when she decided to move back to Poland were "Don't go there. Um, it's a very anti-Semitic country. Um, look what happened to all of our dear ones." And her response is, "Because of what happened, I need to go." So she was very much aware, um, and that decision, that that the sort of awareness was one of. Um, uh, one, of, one of her motivations, definitely, the very fact that her husband died in Poland, that there was anti-Semitism in Poland, that there is potentially more anti-Semitism in Poland. She felt that because she's Jewish, her responsibility was to continue fighting that. And the best place to fight it is where it happened in Poland. Thank you. There's a lot more we could cover. Unfortunately, we have to begin coming to the end. You've already alluded at some length to your likely next project. But since the Spanish Civil War also figures so prominently in your book, An Ordinary Life, I wanted to uh, circle back to the Spanish Civil War for a second. Uh, I know we're jumping around a bit chronologically, but it, it seems like for Tonya Lechtman, the Spanish Civil War, you suggested this before, was a kind of a testing ground for communism in the world as a lived reality. Uh, 
obviously that's not how the civil Spanish Civil War turned out in the end. Would you be looking potentially for your next book at women with similar, different understandings, experiences? Who who would be your potential pool of voices and sources for making sense uh, more generally of women in the Spanish Civil War? So I'm in the process of figuring that out because there are very little documents. And that's sort of another fascinating thing. How do we retrieve voices when there are no documents? Um, but I know at this point there were 150 women who traveled to Spain and were uh, to fight in the Spanish Civil War and were identified as Polish. That doesn't mean that they came from Poland. You know, Dora Lorska, whom we already mentioned, traveled from Czechoslovakia because Czechoslovakia was actually a place where you could illegally travel to Spain. That was impossible in Poland. Many of them traveled from France. So, um, so that group... I'm interested in sort of finding out more about this group, but it's a group that is hard to define because we cannot define them as Polish. We cannot define them as Polish Jews, right? Uh, They came from Palestine. They came from Czechoslovakia. They came from Poland. They came from Belgium. They came came from France. Why were they identified as Polish Jews? Many of them didn't even speak Polish. Yiddish, we know, is, you know, lingua franca of the Spanish Civil Civil War. Uh, so I think that's where I am right now, sort of trying to identify um, the sources, um, the fascinating stories of these women, but because they were indeed fascinating. Um, the sort of silences, because I think there are more silences than answers. And also the, the one question that is... Um, now, why why were they identified as Poland? What does it even mean to be identified as uh, as Polish? Um, and that's where I am right now, trying to see whether all these questions can help me to push me into um, a, whether it's a you know article length project or a book length project. I'm really excited for one to see what comes out of this uh, this research avenue, and I think I mean it, it, if it's even if it's about Poland and the Spanish Civil War, I would encourage you, of course, to transnationalize. Why not? See uh, what other vectors you can bring in. Uh, but it makes such a wonderful, and I, I want to say that also about the Tonya Lechman book. It's such an elegant follow-up to your first book, and I like the trajectory also for this next project, and I hope it becomes a book. Take your time. <laughs> Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you for a wonderful question and this beautiful conversation. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, may I just remind our listeners that my guest today has been Professor Anna Mueller of the University of Michigan-Dearborn, and her book is called An Ordinary Life? Question mark, the Journeys of Tonya Lechtman, 1918-1996, to uh, out this year with Ohio University Press. I encourage you all to go out and get a copy. Uh, Anya, thank you again. Thank you. Uh, I wish everybody a great evening. Thanks very much.